This is available as a podcast and a webinar. What? Name that you've seen. I'm the administrative pro tem for the Maricopa County Justice Courts, Taj Rahi Lu. I believe I've communicated with almost all of you at one point or another. And today we are going to be covering small claims. And the portion that I'm going to be covering in particular is. So I'm just going to let everyone know to begin. I heard some sound. I don't know if that was a question or something to me. I'm experiencing some technical difficulties with our technology, as we all know, is um, a, a double edged sword. At times it is our best friends and then sometimes it can be our worst enemies. I am uh, able to see you and I am hopefully you are able to see and hear me. However, I cannot hear very well any of the uh, the sound that's coming through the the speakers, even though I've logged off, logged back on and tried to um, adjust all of my internal uh, microphone mechanisms. So just so you know, I I, I can't hear you very clearly, but uh, what I was saying, great. Thank you very much, Art. Um, So and I will monitor the chat. (laughs) So what I was saying is, Small claims hearings, which we're going to discuss today, uh, are involving a variety of different types of matters. Uh, For example, sometimes I'm sure you guys see debt collections, civil disputes, but for today's training, I'm going to focus exclusively on the issues in small claims that relate to security deposits. Um, The general statutory authority that underlies the small claims process can, of course, be found in ARS Title 22, Chapter 5, and also, as I'm sure all of you know, there are specific rules of small claims procedures. Uh, Next slide, please, Charles. As to security deposit claims, um, the primary statutory authority can be found in the Arizona Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, and specifically ARS 33-1321. Um, I've provided a copy of that text in your material so that you have it for a quick reference and easy review. And honestly, a good review of that statute is always the best starting place for any questions you might have in the small claims security deposit context because it really lays out a lot of the information and the rules relating to security deposits. Next slide, Charles. Also, I've been told that I have a tendency to speak quickly. I am not always conscious that I'm doing it, so I apologize in advance. And I will, if I take a moment, stop and pause. It's because I am trying to slow down to ensure that you guys can hear me and that I'm not racing through the information that I want to tell you. So um, for slide three. Uh, Well, basically just security deposits and what they are. I'm sure you all know, but just briefly uh, a review of that security deposit is the the money that the tenant gives to the landlord to protect the landlord against any potential damages to the property. Um, That money can also be used to cover any unpaid rent that may remain owed to the landlord if the tenant leaves before the lease expires or even if the tenant stays through the full tenancy, uh, but upon the expiration of the lease there's rent still owed. Next slide, please. Now, Arizona does not put legal restrictions on how much a landlord can ask for as a security deposit. Oh, I'm sorry, Arizona does. Arizona does put legal restrictions on how much a landlord can ask for as a security deposit. And 
that is not more than one and a half times the rent. Um, next slide. But what Arizona doesn't restrict is the amount that a landlord can accept in prepaid rent. And prepaid rent is different from a security deposit. It's exactly what it says it is. It's rent that the tenant is agreeing to pay in advance. Um, it's the payment that the tenant makes. For example, frequently we know with rental properties, landlords request the first and the last month's rent in addition to a security deposit when the tenant moves in. That last month's rent would be considered prepaid rent, and it's usually it is not refundable. It's an advance payment of the rent. The purpose of the prepaid rent is different than the purpose of the security deposit. Next slide, please. You will often see in leases additional fees that are also included in addition to the rent payments. Things commonly you will probably notice are things like pet fees or parking fees, cleaning fees. Um, these are permissible by statute so long as they are clearly spelled out in the lease and writing. And if they are intended to be non-refundable, which usually those kinds of fees are, that needs to be explicitly stated in the lease also. Otherwise, the presumption is that a fee or a deposit is refundable. And that's clearly spelled out in the statute in Section B of 1321. Next slide, please. So sometimes you will see fees that are either explicitly or implicitly intended to be lease break fees. Um, they have different names. It might be a lease break fee or an early rental termination fee. But in any event, these are fees that the landlord is trying to charge the tenant for ending the lease before the contracted expiration date of the lease. Although they use the language fee, which these are permissible. The reality is that these are more typically operating as penalties or inappropriately applied liquidated damages, which are not allowed. Um, our county, our, our organization, MCJC, does have a best practice in this area, which clearly states that judges should not award requested lease break fees or early termination fees because it's an unenforceable penalty. Um, now, that's the general rule, but that doesn't negate each of your responsibility as judicial officers to evaluate the case on a case-by-case -case basis on its merits and actually make a factual determination on whether or not the fee being assessed is in fact a punitive remedy or an inappropriate liquidated damage um, as opposed to an allowable fee under the facts of that specific case. So don't use it as a hard and fast always do the analysis that's required based on the facts of the case. But in general, um, next slide, please. Um, in general, the basis of this distinction is carved out in case law, which has made it clear that as a matter of public policy, um, the primary purpose underlying contractual remedies is meant to be uh, compensatory in nature and not punitive. And when you have these kinds of lease break fees, they're usually operating in a punitive way because when we make a factual determination of whether or not something is a, an appropriate liquidated damage, um, the court needs to be looking at whether the, the damages that are being sought are reasonably related to the actual loss that resulted or to the anticipated loss um, at the time that the contract was executed. And they also, the court, you will also need to determine whether those damages would be difficult to assess 
accurately um, absent a liquidated damage provision that the parties have agreed upon. Um, in these kinds of scenarios and situations involving a landlord and a tenant uh, breaking a lease, terminating an early rental agreement, it's usually very easy to determine the damages or the loss at the time of the breach. Um, because you can see when they leave, you can see how much money is still owed in rent. So if there is a lease break fee, it's usually going to be operating then as a penalty, which isn't allowed as a matter of public policy. And so the fee should be struck. Um, the court should keep in mind that the burden of proving this provision is a permissible liquidated damage or a remedy is on the party seeking the damages, which is usually the landlord. Um, next slide, please. So security deposits are generally refundable. However, technically speaking, um, non-refundable security deposits would be permissible under the statute. However, if a landlord intends for the security deposit to be non-refundable, it must be stated in writing in the lease and the purpose of the non-refundable deposit must be detailed. Um, if the lease is silent, if it doesn't designate the status of a fee or a deposit, then by default, that fee or deposit is considered refundable. Next slide, please. Um, unlike some other states, Arizona does not require that security deposits be held in escrow accounts. Uh, there are no specific rules as to how security deposits or where they need to be held. Uh, the only requirement is that the landlord must hold it in such a way that those funds are available to return to the tenant at the time of their move out. Next slide, please. So both the landlord and the tenant have certain obligations to one another. Those are spelled out in ARS 33-1321 with regards to um, the security deposit and the, the tenancy. The landlord is required to give a signed copy of the lease to the tenant at the move-in, along with a move-in inspection form so that any pre-existing damage to the unit can be noted by the tenant. The landlord is also required to give written notice to the tenant of his or her right to be present during the move out inspection. Um, unless in certain circumstances, usually these occur when there's an immediate and irreparable breach. Um, if the landlord feels has a reasonable cause uh, to feel fear of violence or intimidation from the tenant, then they do not have that obligation. Um, and additionally, if the landlord determines that deductions are required at the move out that are allowable deductions for damages or costs um, from the tenant security deposit, the landlord must give the tenant an itemized list of all of the deductions taken along with any amount that is due back to the tenant. Uh, this generally means the landlord should have receipts, invoices, um, proper documentation for any deduction that they wish that they have taken from the account. Um, and this is going to be a fact-based analysis by the court. And the landlord really should have the appropriate documentation for how he arrived at his numbers. 
Um, if he doesn't, uh, you're going to want to inquire into why not and why that should deduction should then be allowed. Uh, I did receive a question about a scenario um, where a landlord claims that he completed the work himself, such as installing a door or a window or asking if the landlord could charge for his own and asking if the landlord could charge for his own labor in addition to the costs of the item that was purchased to be uh, repaired. Um, so uh, there's no definitive statutory authority that says yes, you can or no, you can't allow this. However, I did ask around to a few different judges, uh, sitting JPs, to get a sense of what they do. And some judges have said that I'm hearing feedback. I'm not sure where that's coming from. Um, some judges have said that they will allow the charges so long as those charges appear to be reasonable for the task, uh, basically treating the landlord like a handyman um, and the landlord would have to submit an invoice for his 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 charges. Um, other judges have said that they would not allow those types of charges from a landlord's self repair unless that landlord was a licensed contractor and the reasoning for that was that judge feels that since that's the standard that the tenant is held to in invoking their specific remedies for self-repair that the landlord should be held to the same standards so there's no clear definitive answer to that as a trier of fact um, judge Humerman just chimed in that she does not allow those types of self-repairs um, to be charged when the landlord's doing it himself or herself as a trier of the fact, you would need to determine what you think um, is just based on the facts of the individual case and the evidence provided. Um, there is a question in the chat. Let me see. What's the impact if the, the tenant states that they never received a copy of the lease? So the, the landlord is required to provide a copy of the lease. The statute itself does not. Um, the language is shall. So it's it's not optional. The statute itself doesn't indicate what the definitive remedy is when a landlord fails to provide a copy of the lease to the tenant at the move in. If that's brought up at the um, small claims hearing, um, one I, I would imagine that the the judicial officer would need to determine what was the harm from it? What what, what were the damages? Uh, to the tenant by not having that? Um, is the tenant asserting that the lease isn't accurate, that there have been changes to it, that this isn't what he or she agreed to? I would imagine that that would need to, that, that analysis would need to occur. I haven't personally experienced that situation. If there's anyone in the, the group who has experienced that, please chime in with what, what you've done, how you've handled that situation. We would love to hear it. Okay, well, in any event, um, if I, if the, I the statute doesn't speak to the specific remedy for that failure. And so I can certainly look into that a little further and I get back to the group at a later date, see if we can find a, a consensus of what most of the hearing officers do in that circumstance or what the JPs who handle theirs do in that circumstance. Um, I also uh, received a question. Um, 
the tenant is obliged. Now the tenant has responsibilities as well. Um, the tenant is obliged to return possession of the unit. That is usually demonstrated by the tenant turning in the unit keys to the landlord or to the property manager. If the tenant wants to be present at the move, in, move out inspection and he or she is entitled to, so long as there's no reasonable fear of violence or intimidation, the tenant does need to advise the landlord and request notice of the date or the time of that hearing. So next slide, please. Judge Huberman has her hand up. So move in and move out inspection forms are likely going to be an important part of your small claims hearing on security deposits because these are the forms that are used to document the condition of the unit property, both at the time that the tenant takes possession as well as the time that the tenant releases possession. And that's why it's important for the tenant to be present at the move in, uh, I'm sorry, at the move out inspection so that if there are any disputes about the condition of the unit, they can be resolved sometimes during that move out inspection process. Next slide, please. Judge Huberman has her hand up. I, I can't hear you. Judge Huberman has her hand up. Judge. Oh, speak. yes. While I was just okay. typing it in the chat, um, I was just saying that the landlord does have an obligation to provide the lease. It is one of the landlord duties. And during the tenancy, the tenant can request that they provide the lease they can send a five-day or a 10-day notice uh, asking for the lease and the the only remedy for the tenant who doesn't get it would probably be to withdraw from the lease agreement uh, but the lease that is signed uh, doesn't make the tenant less liable in my opinion because they don't have the copy I will say, though, it is very common that tenants tell you they don't have a copy of the lease, which creates issues, but um, their remedy had to have been during the tenancy itself to get a copy of the lease. I don't know if anyone right, sees that differently. Charles, maybe you have an opinion. I, I don't. Uh, we'll turn to Mary Blanco. Mary? You're muted, Mary. Sorry. I want to go back to 33-1321, where it reads that the tenant must uh, ask for the itemized statement. It is now the responsibility of the tenant to ask for it. So as hearing officers, if they say, the tenant, the landlord says, no, they didn't ask for it. So I was not obligated to give them an itemized list. What do we do? I'm sorry, was there a question in there? I, yes, I didn't the question hear. Is, what do we do if the tenant did not ask for the itemized statement? And now he's suing the landlord for the itemized statement, return of the deposit. So 1321 does, and, and I actually had discussed this previously with one of the JPs and they weren't even aware that that language was in there. But yes, That's uh, the, the shall demand, the, the, the request of the demand from the tenant for the security deposit and itemized statement. Um, 
in most situations, the actually in looking at 1321, let me pull up. It says specifically within 14 days, excluding the holidays and um, the business days and the transfer of possession and demand by the tenant. Now, the specificity of what the tenant has to demand isn't clear, but it says the demand by the tenant, the landlord shall provide the tenant. I don't see that as, or I wouldn't interpret that as a demand for an itemized list. I see that as the demand for their security deposit back, at which time, the responsibility is on the landlord to provide the security deposit within the 14 days. And if they are not giving the full security deposit back, then they need to provide an itemized list of what deductions are being taken and the reasons why. Um, in most scenarios, I, I, I haven't experienced a scenario where a tenant has not demand, has not requested their security deposit back. And I don't believe that the statute requires that they request specifically the itemized list. I think that's just a responsibility upon the demand of the tenant for their, their security deposit to be returned, um, that if they're not going to give it back in full, that they then have to provide some documentation of itemized of what they took out and why. Okay, so they do not have to demand it. That is just automatically has to come from the landlord. Mm -hmm. Once the tenant's asking for their security deposit back, then yes, I believe that triggers the landlord's responsibility to provide the security deposit. And if they're not giving it in whole, then they need to give an itemized list of um, why they took certain deductions out of it. Okay. And the second but part what of happens? But what happens if the landlord refuses to give an itemized list. I think that was what Mary's original question was. No, that, that wasn't my original question. That's my question then. Good, okay. Um, the landlord is required by statute and if they fail to do so, and they're holding part or all of the security deposit from the tenant, and then the tenant is entitled to the remedies for uh, wrongful withholding. That's a requirement by statute. They shall, they shall provide that. So, excellent answer. Thank you. Okay. So this, so the, the other question then is that it says the tenant within sixty days after the itemized list and amount due are mailed. Wait a minute. That's not the question. I'm I'm uh, sorry. I couldn't hear that, Mary. Okay. I think it says that after a certain time, the tenant no longer has the right to ask. For and for so they have a, a, a time frame it, now. Yeah, yes, I know what you're referring to. Basically, the if the uh, tenant hasn't disputed, if they haven't brought to the landlord's attention any dispute in those okay. itemized deductions within the, the 60 days, then yes, they've waived that right. So if the landlord sends an itemized list with, <laughs> say they had a $1,000 security deposit okay, and the landlord babe. keeps $500 of it for damages that they believe they caused, holes in the wall, repairs that they need to make, and they receive that itemized list and their $500, and they sit on it for two months. And then a couple of weeks after the two months, they take a look at it and realize, wait a minute, he charged me $500 
for this door damage, but I didn't damage that door. They've waived their right. They have a specific amount of time in which to make their claim and failure to exercise that claim or that um, to, to refute the, uh, the list. If it doesn't occur within that specific time, then it's considered final. But uh, so that's, you know, in theory, but realistically, one of the things that I do think and that I have experienced is that people are usually pretty aware of their money. And so if someone has moved out and there's money owed to them or money that they feel is owed to them, they're usually not going to delay a few months because that's something they think they're entitled to that they want back. Um, they're mm -hmm. usually pretty prompt about responding if they don't get all of their security deposit back in the the full amount that they feel they are owed, or if they dispute some kind of damage that's itemized. But my question is, if we happen to give a, a case that's stale, are we going to dismiss the case? If there or are no other issues, if there's no other issues at, at um, that have been alleged beyond the, the itemized, I, I'm disputing this itemized and you're past the 60 days, then Yes, they've, the, the, the dispute is moot. They've waived their right to uh, challenge it because it wasn't timely. Is is the question though, Mary, So, is that an affirmative defense or are you asking if you as a hearing officer can bring that up on behalf of the plaintiff or on behalf of the tenant if the plaintiff didn't bring it up? Oh, I didn't think about it that way. Oh. But if the yeah yes, I didn't think about it that way. I mean, yeah, I think that's if I bring it up, yeah, I so think that's saying, an interesting I, question. Yeah, because should I or should I not bring it up? Should I look at it? Is that is that what you're saying, Judge? And if it's not an issue to either, then I should just go ahead ahead and hear the case. I think that the statute makes it pretty clear that if they have not responded to a dispute this within the 60 days to dispute the itemized list, then assuming that's the only issue uh, under um, under consideration, that they've waived any claims they might have. So it is, yeah, I, I would think that the court could dismiss that and should, and should. as untimely. Okay. All right. No matter Are we on slide 13 or 14? Slide 14? I think we went back to 11. <laughs> well, but I mean, moving forward, I think we're on slide 14 now. Okay. Um, or is it 13? 13. Um, that's just uh, basically a little bit more detail about the purpose of the move out inspection, keeping in mind that the tenant is usually welcome to attend and should for their own benefit. However, it's not required for the tenant to be present um, to conduct the, uh, the inspection for the landlord. And the tenant doesn't have to sign off on the walkthrough. So for example, sometimes tenants will come into the court and say, I wasn't there during the, um, during the move out inspection. So uh, I disagree with this. Um, he, the, the landlord did this inspection without me. The tenant doesn't have to be present. The tenant only has to be given the opportunity to be present. Um, and so if the tenant doesn't make him or herself available for that move out inspection, the landlord can go ahead and conduct it without him and the tenant doesn't have to sign off on it. So in it, in a sense, they've waived their right to um, 
to, to do the walkthrough if they choose not to appear. Next slide. Question. Uh, yeah. Question, can I answer? Can you, can you hear my question? I, I, I can hear you, it's just very, very faint. What's your question? Okay, I'm usually the, the landlords call the tenants at the last minute to give them the time of their inspection. How should we handle that? So the statute does not provide any specific time no. frame of how much notice has to be provided. It just has to be during no. business hours. You can't say, hey, I'm going to do your inspection at 9 p.m. Saturday night. You know, it has to be during normal uh, business hours. Um, but there's no statutory um, uh -huh. rule uh, or authority as to how much time, a leeway that one has to give. So in that scenario, I would think that that requires a fact-based analysis of, you know, how much time was given, why did you delay so long in not providing that. It doesn't change um, the end result, which is that the tenant, uh, the, the landlord can have the walkthrough without the tenant present, but it might give you some thing to consider in determining if there are big discrepancies between what the tenant is saying the move out condition is and the landlord is saying the move out condition is and the tenant didn't get a reasonable opportunity to be present. Um, they don't have to be present, but one would want to inquire as to why such short notice. Why was it not, you know, given uh, uh, why was the tenant not given an adequate amount of time in which to to show up and participate and what evidence the tenant has and what evidence the landlord has besides perhaps the move out inspection to establish that the tenant actually created those damages in light of the fact that the landlord, it, depending on the facts and the evidence presented in light of the fact that the landlord might have been trying to sneak a, a move out inspection past the tenant in an unreasonable Unper uh, uh, not a normal course of business fashion. Yeah, like 30 minutes. <laughs> 30 minutes notice. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound reasonable at all. And so it only becomes an issue if the landlord and the tenant are disputing what the move out condition was. And in which case, I, I think it would be uh, understandable and reasonable for a judicial officer to consider that the unreasonableness of the time frame for the move out inspection in determining whether or not and what other evidence is being presented to the court in determining whether or not those damages or whatever the condition is that the landlord is trying to assert based on this move out inspection um, is. So that I would say that goes to the weight uh, uh, of the evidence in terms of when you're considering it. You have one person, the landlord's move out inspection, and if the tenant is disputing that, and the evidence shows that the landlord only gave them 30 minutes uh, notice to participate in the move out inspection where they could have looked at and maybe had those discussions. I think that's something that should you know, be considered in making your determination as to whether or not those damages are, or that evidence of those damages is accurate. But, by statute, there's no time frame. It does not say you have to give them a, a day's notice or whatever. It just says that you have to, you know, notify the tenant. Okay, slide. What are we on? Slide are we on? 
15, uh, I think we're going to slide 14. Um, so this is usually the crux of the, um, or one of the cruxes of a small claims hearing involving security deposits. And that is, when does the security deposit money have to be returned and how? Um, the landlord has 14 business days from the end of the tenancy to return the security deposit. You start counting the day after the tenant has um, turned over possession, which is usually indicated by turning in the keys. And then if on the 15th day, the tenant hasn't received his security deposit and the if any money was deducted from that, the itemized list of deductions, the tenant can then initiate a lawsuit. And that's usually what happens. And that's usually how they end up in small claims court. Um, I did receive a question previous to this about how strictly enforced that 14 day rule should be. Uh, for example, uh, what if the check arrives a week late, but after the tenant filed the lawsuit in small claims court, I haven't seen that specific scenario, but presumably the tenant would likely dismiss his suit if he's gotten his security deposit back, even if it's slightly late, because the whole purpose of the suit is to get the money back. Usually if the person gets the money back and even if it's, you know, a week or a few, the, the, the question was a few days later, if it's they probably wouldn't have had time to file a suit if it was just a few days later, but perhaps they did. If it's a few days later or a week late and uh, they've received the um, well, they're saying uh, uh, the question is, isn't related to postmark date. Yes, but they're saying if they've received that after the time frame that they had. What what should you do if they they come into court and it's. A week past the specific time frame that the statute has allowed. My thought on that is that presumably the tenant's going to want, if that's the only issue, I need my security deposit, they haven't given it back, and they got it back late, they've gotten their security deposit back, presumably um, they would probably be fine with dismissing the suit, even if it was slightly late. However, technically, um, the language of the statute isn't discretionary. Um, 1321D does specifically state that within 40, 14 days after the termination of tenancy, delivery of possession and demand by the tenant, um, and that's excluding weekends and legal holidays, the landlord shall provide an itemized list of all the deductions taken with the amount due to the tenant, if any. Um, if this doesn't occur, then the detailed statutory remedies are presumably available to the tenant, but I don't imagine that's a, a situation that you're likely to see often. Um, because people are usually happy they've gotten their money back. Now, if they've gotten their money back, but they haven't gotten all of it because there were deductions and they're disputing those deductions, then they're going to go forward and um, that analysis can then be made whether or not uh, there was a wrongful withholding. Next slide. Yes, and that's uh, as Judge Huberman points out that with wrongful withholding, and we'll be getting to that in some of the future slides, there are treble damages. Um, slide 15. Uh, that's just discussing how the return of security deposit should be handled. Um, it should be sent to the last known address of the tenant unless other arrangements have been made. Uh, usually a tenant's going to provide landlord with their new address because Presumably the last known address is where they lived and where they're moving out of. Um, 
again, when it comes to people's money, they're usually pretty diligent about ensuring that people have the way and the means to get their money back to them. Next slide. Uh, so I, I covered this earlier, uh, just briefly to recap. Uh, the security deposits can be kept to cover unpaid rent, to repair property damage beyond normal wear and tear, those kinds of things. Uh, next slide. And now we come to the wrongful withholding, which is where our remedies are. Um, if there's a landlord who has failed to return a portion or all of the tenant's security deposit um, in violation of the statute, uh, if they don't provide the itemized list, as uh, Mary had asked earlier, or if they provided a list, but the itemiz uh, itemization of the deductions is insufficient. Um, if this happens, that's when the tenant usually is going to sue to recover all or part of the security deposit that he believes he's owed, and he can re request damages in an amount equal to twice the amount wrongfully withheld. So that is treble damages, not double damages. For example, if a $1,000 security deposit was wrongfully withheld from the tenant and he is successful in proving that claim, then the court may award the tenant $3,000, the $1,000 of the security deposit that was owed and wrongfully withheld, and $2,000 double the, the amount that was withheld for a total of the $3,000. So that's where the treble damages comes to. Um, the, the question has come up, under what circumstances can the tenant sue for multiple times the damages of the uh, the security deposit what your slide says here is if this happens the tenant may bring suit to recover in an amount equal to twice the amount wrongfully withheld so the question then becomes under what circumstances would a hearing officer allow more than just the, a single security deposit the way I have handled this in the past is if the tenant, or I'm sorry, if the landlord tenant situation is particularly egregious, uh, whether there have been problems throughout where I might consider more than just the single security deposit. Does that seem reasonable? So I'm glad you pointed out the May. I, I put the specific language of the statute in there because frequently in 1321, there's a lot of shalls, which are not discretionary. The landlord Correct. shall provide Correct. the itemized list and the security deposit or the portion that was not deducted. Um, a lot of shalls. In the trouble damage statute, it is May, which makes it discretionary. Um, so I'm sorry, was Correct. there a question? Correct. So that would be based on the judicial officer's determination whether or not they believe that treble damages are warranted in the circumstances, and that's going to vary from judge to judge. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. I would, suggest, I would suggest that the treble damages are a penalty for a landlord who has not fulfilled their obligation and I think that you might have some leeway in deciding you're going to give them the full double the amount, uh, but you should really consider giving the treble damages if the landlord only complied 
with the return of the deposit because they were sued. I mean, I understand it's discretionary, but it is a protection for the tenant to get their deposit back. Could you repeat that, please, Judge? I didn't hear that. Could you please I, repeat what you just said? I just said that the treble damages are in the statute as a penalty for the landlord who's not complying with their obligation to return the deposit. Because if they didn't have an obligation, they would keep that. They do anyways. They keep the tenant's money based on whatever they want. And so I think that a hearing officer would have to have a really good reason not to award treble damages in a case where the only reason the tenant is getting their deposit back is because they are suing their landlord. I mean, I think if there was an issue as to the landlord withheld too much deposit because they thought they had a right and they didn't, then you could have more discretion. But when someone just didn't return the deposit, I don't see why you wouldn't impose the penalty. That's my opinion. I think I understand what you're saying. Okay. So, and, and that's probably a large part of what you guys are going to see, wrongful withholdings. And again, because the language is discretionary, as, as Judge Huberman was noting, you do have the ability not to give the trouble damages, but as she noted, and as I had stated, it's a fact-by-fact fact analysis. You're really going to want to listen to the evidence and try to understand why the amount was um, not provided or why the landlord's failure occurred what was you know there, there's a difference frequently between when there are landlords who are big companies that have multiple properties they they know the way that the system works they they're familiar with the statutes and they know what their obligations are when they fail to do something it might be viewed a little bit differently than if it's a pro per landlord who's a single individual with one rental property that perhaps isn't very well versed and wasn't intentionally trying or negligently trying or maliciously trying to withhold money. Um, perhaps a mistake occurred in the itemized deduction or some reasonable dispute that was not stemming from mal, you know, uh, malintent. Then perhaps you would consider that and decide that just getting the security deposit back was enough. Um, or if it seemed like it was a little bit more knowing and intentional or, or problematic based on the behavior that and the evidence that you're hearing, you might think that there is a need for a more severe uh, response that would justify and warrant the, the treble damages being imposed. Um, next, next slide. Wait a minute, Taj. I have a question. This okay. triple, dam triple damages that we're talking about, would we consider it only if it's asked on the lawsuit? So if the tenant doesn't request it, um, but there's been clear evidence of wrongful withholding, the I believe the court does have the discretion to um, to impose up to treble damages. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it, I thought it had to be asked for. The statute simply reads if the landlord fails to comply with the subsection, yeah. the tenant may recover 
this amount. Wow. So that's a big responsibility on us. <laughs> Hi, Taj. Anthony Lasavia here. How are you? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. I'm not hearing anything. If there was anything further, it's Anthony Lasavia. Uh, can the rest of you hear me? Uh, you you I can't hear. I can't understand what you're saying either. I can hear okay. you. So my question is, um, I guess it's a statement. Uh, more likely than not, the cases that I've heard, small claims involving landlord-tenant disputes are smaller landlords, not large corporations. But the smaller landlords spend that money or they just assume that that security deposit is theirs and they will try to find a way. Um, the landlord will want full cash value for a stove that's 15 years old, a refrigerator that's 10 years old, a carpet that's you know eight years old. And that's how they justify it. So we get, and, we give them a sign. And we're about to get into that section. So Excellent. if you can Perfect. hold off, if you have a question, Art, and then if after that section, it doesn't answer your question or address the issue, then if you can let us know. Thank you. Okay, so next slide. Um, slide, I think this is slide 18. So, um, this is where we get to the analysis of what damages are warrant a um, deduction from the security deposit because normal wear and tear is expected in rental units. So a landlord can't expect to rent, have rental property and then charge the tenant to bring his property to brand new after every um, tenancy. But that's a fact-based analysis of determining what's normal wear and tear and what's damage. There's never going to be a hard and fast, you know, rule or, or statute, but we have a general idea from, from case law and from practice. And we know that scuff marks, chips, little nail holes in the wall, the kinds of things that people normally use to make their homes habitable and personal are considered normal wear and tear. Damage are things that are not expected when you rent your unit out to someone like holes in your walls, um, cracked tiles in your floor, um, pet damage. You know, a lot of people have pets and their pets are urinating all over the carpet and you can't get the smell out. You know, that's beyond normal wear and tear. Um, people who are smokers who are leaving burns in the in the flooring or the, 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 the carpet, those kinds of things. Um, next slide, please. So again, this is going to be very fact-based and evidence-based. So this is where you will have to, as the trier of fact, hear all of the evidence and try to make a determination of whether you think something is normal wear or tear or whether you think that something crosses the line into um, actionable damage. Um, some of the things that you should probably consider when making that determination of what's normal and wear and tear for because all situations aren't created equal. So obviously you're going to have a different scenario if you have a brand new uh, newly renovated property that's going to be assessed a little differently than a unit that it's on its eighth occupant um, without any big renovations or updates uh, between occupancies. Um, occupancies. Um, a unit with an entire family with young children that you've 
knowingly rented to, that's going to wear and tear a little differently than a unit with a single person or an elderly person living alone. Um, a unit with very cheap, basic builder grade quality products, those are going to wear out faster than one where you have top of the line products. Um, and that's not uh, something that should be ignored. Those are all things that you should keep in mind when assessing whether or not the wear and tear that the landlord is trying to claim as damage is actually um, damage or not. Um, this is, uh, next slide, please. This slide is just a basic life expectancy. These are general rules, general guidelines, not hard and fast rules. I got this from a HUD appendix that used these as their standard approximations of the life expectancies for HUD properties. Um, next slide, please. Uh, this is just a reminder that um, the landlord does have a statutory duty to mitigate any damages. So if you have a landlord who comes in front of you and says this tenant left and he still had three months on his lease, so I, I want the three months rent. Um, but he was able to rent it out a month after they left and they had a new tenant in the unit. That new tenant, um, those that rent is to mitigate the damages of the lost rent. So that uh, any rent that they receive during the term of that tenancy by being able to re-rent it, and they are supposed to be making efforts to re-rent it. They shouldn't just sit on the property and make no effort and say, well, it stayed empty three months. He owes me three months. They're supposed to make an effort to re-rent the property. And if they do get a tenant in, any rents received from that re-rental should be used to offset any loss that was caused by the prior tenants earlier departure. Similarly, if there is a situation in the unit that creates damage, let's say bad plumbing or a broken door um, and the tenant doesn't fix it, the landlord still has a responsibility to stop the continuing damage from getting worse and mitigate those damages. He can't just let the water keep flowing and then charge you know, the tenant for the entire water damage to the unit if he or she was aware and had the ability to mitigate that by getting a plumber in or putting a door, a broken door on, uh, that's broken, putting a, a new door on the unit so that the property can't be trashed or um, someone can't come in and steal the appliances, those kinds of situations. Uh, next, next slide, please. Um, so ARS 33-1370 uh, lays out the obligations with regard to handling a tenant's personal property after either termination of the tenancy or abandonment. Uh, that's more uh, fully detailed on this slide. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on that in the interest of time. Next slide, please. Um, sometimes you'll see uh, situations where the property changes ownership in the course of a tenant's lease. Uh, the buyer of the property does have the responsibility to ensure that they receive all of the security deposits from the current owner because it will be their obligation at the termination of that tenancy to um, to return that security deposit to the to the uh, tenant. Next slide, please. Okay, and that's just a brief overview and reminder of small claims lawsuits. Uh, they can be heard by either justices of the peace or a hearing officer, small claims hearing officer. If the parties don't want to have their matter heard by a hearing officer, they can request that it be transferred uh, to the JP to hear it. Um, 
the there are no jury trials, there are no attorneys, there is no right to appeal, uh, there are no rules of evidence. Basically, these um, these hearings are meant to be informal and swift, and they are meant to just do justice and to get to the heart of the matter. Um, any evidence that's relevant is admissible, um, so long as it's not privileged. Um, and they have to be $3,500 or less, and that includes the claim, the counterclaim. There can be no split claims to try to qualify and get under that, that amount. Um, if failures to appear happen, just remember if the defendant fails to appear, but the plaintiff is present, the plaintiff still needs to prove their case, but they can do that without the defendant present and a judgment can then be issued. If the plaintiff fails to appear, but the defendant is present, the court can dismiss the case with or without prejudice, or the court can award judgment for the defendant if there's um, a counterclaim. Uh, and if both parties fail to appear, the court should dismiss the case or and or any counterclaims without prejudice. Um, and then next slide, please. And these are some of the general issues that I've seen in the context of small claims hearings in the past year. Um, usually the largest complaint that we receive is the demeanor. People feel that they're not being heard. People feel that the judicial officer isn't being nice to them, isn't courteous. Um, and as a result, they say that they're not professional. Um, they feel that they weren't given an opportunity to fully speak because they feel that the hearing officer is cutting them off. Um, so just a reminder, always be as professional and courteous as possible when people are speaking. Try to avoid cutting people off or if you do have to, because sometimes people ramble and get on tangents, um, interrupt them and explain why you are directing them back to whatever the relevant matter is and why whatever they're trying to tell you about isn't relevant to your determination of the facts in the case. Um, but just use a lot of the uh, the courtesy language that will make it really easy when viewing an FTR or re recording to see that you were being as professional as possible. Um, another issue that comes up is perception of bias. Um, parties feel that the judicial officer was biased toward one or the other party based on if they're too friendly chit-chatting with them, if they feel that they were in the room before or in the virtual room or in the real room before they came in and they, they think that they talked about the case before they appeared. Um, those are things to be aware of, um, sometimes based on statements that the hearing officer or the uh, uh, pro tem might say, they feel that they've prejudged the case. So try to avoid any statements that might make it appear that you've already made up your mind about the case before the, the case evidence concludes. Um, another complaint is, um, and this is especially when you're hearing conflicting testimony, make sure that you explain the reason for your ruling and note that you've heard the testimony that conflicts with whatever testimony you're accepting. So if you have party plaintiff who says, you know, I did this and plaintiff, uh, the defendant says, no, this didn't happen. And you decide that you believe the plaintiff, just make sure that you note in your ruling I did hear testimony, you know, conflicting testimony. I did hear your testimony defendant that you disagree that this occurred or you say that this. However, after having considered all the evidence and weighing the credibility of the evidence uh, of the witnesses and the reliability of the evidence that was presented, 
I've just reached this ruling. Um, and that way they at least know that you heard them because sometimes they say they didn't even hear me because I said this didn't happen. And you might have heard them, you just didn't believe them. But um, you can diplomatically explain that in your, your ruling. Um, another thing that did come up just as a complete aside, just be aware that oral deaths, the statute of limitations is three years, and that's uh, ARS section 12-543. So if you have a situation where there is an oral debt, um, the statute of limitations for that is three years. That's it. Any other questions before Judge Huberman begins hers? All right, so our next presenter is Judge Huberman. Thank you, Taj. And Judge, just go ahead and share your PowerPoint. And uh, Judge Huberman, as you know, is our uh, presiding justice of the peace here in Maricopa County. Uh, does a, an awful lot of uh, pre presentations for us, is just great at it. And so she's gonna talk about the challenge of dealing with self-represented litigants in small claims. So it says that you need to give me approval to take control. It's not asking me to give you approval. It said it wasn't accepted. <laughs> All right, you, you want to go I'll, ahead and do the PowerPoint, that's fine. Apparently I'll have to. <laughs> okay, take it away. All right, so we can um this i guess now kind of begins where taj's um presentation uh left off um i will say that this this presentation is an abbreviated version of the ones that we do for judges there's some of the issues that the judges have in regular civil uh that don't show up in small claims because it is a more informal setting and the rules of evidence don't apply. Uh, but dealing with a self-represented litigant is the same um, in all levels of the courts, um, whether any, any case type, everything. A lot of the symptoms of uh, the self-represented litigants um, are, are shared in, in, in all stages and all type of proceedings. Uh, and so they 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 present a lot of things that are incomplete or inaccurate. Um, they have little knowledge about the law, uh, which is why a lot of the questions that today came up were were important because they will depend on you to know a lot of the things and fill in a lot of the blanks uh, because they don't know uh, exactly what the law allows them to do or not. They definitely don't understand the procedure and no knowledge at all about um, evidence. One of the more interesting things that we find is that everybody goes to the internet to get information, and we know that, number one, the internet is not necessarily reliable. Not all information there is true. Uh, but more importantly, they don't realize that the, the rules and the law may be state-specific and they're looking at the wrong jurisdiction. Uh, so those are things, you know, specifically we were talking today about the law on security deposits, 
they may come and tell you, I had six months to claim this. And, uh, and it could be that they were looking at the law in California. Uh, so those things uh, come up. The next slide. Uh, but what does the self-represented litigant value? They want a procedure that's fair and understandable. So the procedure is always better if it, there is fairness in the procedure and good communication. So this is where you all come in being able to explain and talk to them in terms that they may not necessarily agree with what you're telling them, but as long as they can understand what you are telling them and why you have arrived at the conclusions that you arrived or why you're doing what you're doing, um, they will better accept uh, the, your decision. Um, they will, you know, that the process will be better, they will be more willing to comply with what you have them do. Uh, they'll be more willing to uh, pay for the judgment if they lose the case, as opposed to if they didn't trust uh, your decision in the first place. And in, in, in the end, what we really want here is access to justice, that all sides uh, feel that, that, that justice have been served uh, for all of them. Next. So the, the previous slide talked about procedural fairness. Um, and so uh, at, at the risk of being repetitive, what's more important here is how you make your decision, not what your decision is. Uh, they, they will accept a decision that is not in their favor as long as they feel that the way you arrived to that decision was fair. Um, and that uh, you you arrived to it in uh, in a reasoned manner. Um, and as this last bullet point says, it's not enough to be fair. They must perceive that the process has been fair. So if you come to a decision without an explanation, that maybe in the end you can defend to any of us to tell us why that was a fair decision. But if the litigant doesn't perceive why that was fair, they're not going to accept it as a fair decision, even if it was. So a lot of this just has to do with how you present in, in, in the court, how you present to the litigants and how you present your decisions uh, and, and your decision-making uh, process. Next. So the next is talk about some of the best practices, what things that we can do uh, to make sure that, uh, that we have this procedural fairness. So we have to give litigants an opportunity to tell their story. We do know that uh, you know, they tend to be repetitive, they'll tell the same thing over and over, and many times if we don't cut them off, they will talk for, you know, for a long, long time. So giving an opportunity to tell their story doesn't mean that you lose control over the process, 
and you don't try to guide them and keep them on track. Uh, but make it clear that you're not cutting them off, that you have interest in what they're saying, and that you are not, um, th that they're not missing that opportunity. Um, they have to perceive that they're treated with dignity and respect. Um, I, I, for one, like to be very formal in my court. Uh, I don't use first names. I call everyone uh, by, uh, by, by their title, you know, Mr., Ms., uh, whatever it may be, um, to keep that, that perception of, of respect uh, towards them. Um, again, this is, I've already said this, that the decision-making process is unbiased and trustworthy. Uh, they need to understand their rights and understand the decisions. Uh, you know, take your time to explain what the decision is. Uh, not just why you're making it, but what the result is and what is expected of them. Um, and that they should perceive that the court's interested in their personal situation. This is like, uh, I understand that this must be really difficult for you, but the only thing I can decide in this case is X. Or I understand how this has personally um, affected your life, but I can only make a decision as to you know what I'm deciding. Uh, just make it clear that that you're not discounting what they're feeling, uh, but that you're going to make the decision that you have to make uh, according to law. Next. So, I, I mean, I know you've probably heard this ad nauseum. Make sure that you always are on the record. I understand that small claims are not, uh, can't be appealed. And so you might think, you know, what's the use of the record if it can't be appealed? The record in the end is going to help you, never hurt you. Um, we get tons of complaints. Uh, the the Commission on Judicial Conduct is constantly getting complaints. The judge yelled at me. The judge was mean to me. Uh, and then they go back and hear the record and none of that ever happened. So in the end, the record is is going to help you and not and not harm you. So uh, it, it's much better if everything is recorded. Definitely for those of you who also do civil traffic, uh, those are appealable and those should definitely be recorded. Um, and then make sure that they understand what you're deciding in this proceeding. Um, you know, maybe at the beginning say, um, you know, let, let's go back to the example of the security deposit you know, I'm here to decide if uh, the security deposit should have been returned and wasn't returned, and I'll hear testimony to that effect. Um, I, you know, that way you keep them on track on what they're talking about, that you don't want to hear that how bad the landlord was or how expensive the rent has been and how difficult it was for you uh, to, to do all the stuff that you did. Uh, you know, the, how difficult that tenancy was, uh, just so they understand what decision you'll be making. Um, I, 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 I think that most of you at the very beginning of the proceeding probably explain how the proceeding is going to go. 
uh, that uh, you you outline, um, uh, you know, who's, who's going to put on evidence first and who how the witnesses are going to testify and that they can ask questions. Uh, make sure so everyone understands at the beginning what the proceeding is going to look like. If you have a limit of time or if you're concerned about time or as a general rule, tell them how much time you have available for the hearing. You know, it is now one o'clock. I have a hearing that starts at 1.30. We need to resolve this in, in 30 minutes. So that way, when you're hurrying them up during the proceeding, it's not now that they feel that suddenly you don't want to listen to them, but that they've been told ahead of time. Um, if there's a law uh, that you want to explain at the beginning so they understand uh, that they can focus on that during their testimony, uh, that's a good idea to explain also. Um, I think, you know, for, for civil traffic hearings, I think it's a good idea to say you've been charged with, you know, a violation of 28701 and the elements are this, this, and this, right? And so you explain it from the beginning and so they know how to focus their testimony uh, when they when they begin. Uh, use simple language, uh, let them know that they can always ask questions. Do you have any questions about what I said? Does anyone have a question before we begin? Uh, make sure that 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 uh, that you're allowing that. If you're going to ask your own questions or you're going to interrupt, make sure they understand why, uh, that you just need to clarify something um, and that you're just trying to get to the facts, that you're not uh, you, that you're not biased towards one party or another, uh, that you're just trying to clarify things that need to be clarified. And then pay attention and make it look like you're paying attention. Um, if they see you constantly looking at your computer or looking down at your phone or uh, whatever it is else that you're doing, uh, they're going to feel that they're not being listened to. Uh, so that that's very important. If you do take notes, you might want to tell them. I'm taking notes because I want to be sure that I remember uh, the testimony. Uh, just so they know what you're doing, that you're not making your shopping list or something like that. Next. Um, so managing the evidence in, in, in small claims, this is a little less complicated uh, because the rules of evidence aren't as strict. Um, so you, the, there, you have less issues to worry about uh, than we do in, in civil court where you have to worry about foundation and you have to worry uh, about hearsay and things that uh, small claims doesn't necessarily uh, have the same constraints. What In the end, when we, when we deal with self-represented litigants in civil court, um, a lot of times, you know, one of the, the tips that we give is to just go ahead and allow evidence that may not be otherwise admissible. Uh, but because you are the trier of facts, you are going to know that what weight you're going to give to that evidence. And sometimes it's just easier to let the self-represented litigant, you know, get the, introduce the hearsay letter that their neighbor gave. So you're not fighting with them over why you can't accept it, but you will give it, you know, no weight at all because you know it's it's hearsay and not acceptable. Um, in small claims, you really don't have those issues because everything is acceptable. 
but again, you are the trier of facts. So that means that you will give the weight to the evidence that you feel it believes. Um, the rules, you know, the the, it, it, the rules of evidence require that you um, allow the parties, you know, to, to do direct um, questioning or narrative testimony if it's the party themselves that's testifying, and then the other party to cross-examine, and then uh, there could be a redirect based on the cross-examination. Uh, small claims, you know, it becomes very difficult to explain sometimes to a self-represented litigant what cross-examination is and what's the difference between a question and prefacing the question with your version of the facts. Um, again, small claims is a little, you know, you have a little bit more leeway in that, uh, but I would encourage that you make sure that everyone is given the opportunity to ask questions that they want to ask them. Um, or to add something additional at the end after the testimony has concluded. Uh, but because they, they're they sometimes not able to get to the information through cross-examination, they want to get to it through uh, what normally would be considered uh, probably, uh, you know, just, just uh, well, the word escapes now, when, when they, the, they come back and and try to say that what that that person said wasn't true and present the evidence. So, you know, just allow them to go back and forth as much as you can in time, uh, because again, you would just want to make sure that they felt that they were heard. Um, if the litigant has failed to establish something that needs to be established, give them an opportunity. Don't just say, well, you never explained that, so I'm finding against you. Um, you know, I, I'm i suing because I, I, I have an injury that was caused by uh, the, the, the car accident. Um, and, you know, my knee hurts every time it rains. So you can tell them, I understand that you have an injury. You need to explain to me how that injury relates to the car accident that you're suing. Uh, you know, give them that opportunity to fill in the information that's that's missing. Um, and again, you know, provide them an opportunity to add or present whatever they're missing. Um, I see that your complaint, you... Uh, you mentioned a letter. Do you have that letter? Do you want to present it? You know, just given those opportunities, uh, this isn't gotcha court. It's an opportunity to hear whatever uh, they want to tell us. Um, and then if necessary, uh, just remind them that as a judge, you always need to be fair and neutral. Uh, next. So. I know that this is one we've, we've talked about this in the past about announcing the decision if possible from the bench. I know that in a lot of the trainings there, uh, the hearing officers are told that if you anticipate that there could be issues in the court that you should take the matter under advisement and then uh, do your ruling. Uh, and we've had in the past uh, hearing officers that just typically do that. Um, 
I think in the end, unless there's a really bad situation uh, by which you think that you should withhold your decision, um, it's usually best uh, to give it from the bench if you can, because that's the only way you can really explain how you arrived at your decision and what it means. Um, I would suggest that if you are going to take it under advisement and then give your ruling, that at least you write out a small paragraph as to why you made that decision and not just send in a judgment for plaintiff for $2,000 without any explanation. Because that's going to leave the defendant in a situation of not understanding why they lost. Um, and if, when you explain your decision, um, if possible, you might want to acknowledge both sides and say, I understand, you know, Mr. Smith, uh, that you indicated that it was not your intention to do so, but I've also taken into account that the damages, you know, whatever it is, you know, to give both sides kind of an acknowledgement of what they say, but it wasn't sufficient. Or what, what you said was understandable, but I can't base my decision on that, whatever it is. Um, again, this one, number three, might maybe a little bit more uh, less for small claims because you can't uh, really order anything except for monetary damages. You can't order them to do anything. Um, but just to explain to them uh, that they're going to have the judgment against them and that they're going to have to pay for the judgment, just something like that. Um, and, and again, the same one is number four. That's probably not for small claims, but you might want to remind them that the decision is not appealable. Um, and then always just be polite, thank them for participating, acknowledge their efforts, you know, thank you for coming, you know, thank you for taking the time to be here today. Uh, just all those type of acknowledgements that, that we can have. And then next. Charles? Oh. Um, and then these are just things how to deal with when people get a little bit heated or when you know you, they're starting to lose a little bit of control. Um, so this one we call the acknowledge and pivot is acknowledge the emotion and then change the topic. You know, I understand that this is important to you, but let's concentrate on this. Um, and then keep the focus on things that are external to their emotions, right? So make sure that they focus on the procedure, the elements of the law. And, and so phrases like the law requires that I consider X um, to try to keep them focused on what they need to focus and get them out of that, that emotional state that they may be in. Again, my decision must be based on uh, the, the testimony of witnesses. I can't consider uh, what whatever else you, you you're trying to not consider, um, and then you can also paraphrase. Uh, so if I understand you correctly, you're asking the court to. Um, I, I mean I I don't know. It comes to mind a case that I had where somebody wanted the ashes of the dead bunny. So if I understand you correctly, you're asking that I order. Sam to return the ashes to you, 
but I need you to understand that the law does not allow me to do that. I can only establish a monetary amount if you can establish the damages uh, for the cost of the actions or whatever it is. Um, just try to keep your voice level and firm. I know this is easier said than done. Um, it is very easy to lose control, especially when they're losing control. Uh, a, a really good tip is if they start getting loud and shouting, actually lower your voice. Because if you speak softer, they're going to have to pay attention and they're going to have to stop shouting to listen to what you're saying. Uh, when they have flawed logic, when they are just based on emotion and they're not really listening, there's no way you're going to get through to them with logic. Um, at this point, you've explained, you've done everything we talked about. You've followed, you know, all our recommendations to the T. Uh, they're just going to continue disagreeing. At that point, you just may have to say, I've already explained to you what I reached my ruling. Um, I understand what you are saying, but the decision has been made. I'm sorry, I need to move on to the next case. Thank you. Um, don't just shut them down without, uh, but don't argue with their logic because sometimes, you know, when you start saying, you, you're not understanding what I'm saying, that's never going to work. It's not worth it. Um, sometimes people just need to vent in court, and I'm sure most of the civil traffic off hearing officers have heard this more than the small claims. They just want to tell you how mean that police officer was to them, how rude they were when they when they stopped them, why they they stopped them because their their car was the wrong color, whatever it was. If you have the time, if you have a few minutes, just maybe give them that opportunity to vent if it's not going to hurt it, if they're not being rude about it um, or loud. Uh, sometimes give them a few moments to vent. It's not going to hurt anyone. And, uh, and, and and they've said what they've come to say. Um, and then again, don't engage. Silence is, is always good. If they are just ranting, you can just sit there and be quiet um, and just let them keep going. Uh, and at some point when they're not getting the reaction from you that they want, uh, hopefully they'll stop. So those are just a few of the tips that I have for dealing with self-represented litigants. Looks like we have about five minutes. If anyone has any comments or questions on this or on anything else. Now, and thank you, Judge Huberman. Uh, did uh, with with the case of the person who wanted his buddy's ashes? Did did you follow up the? I'm sorry, I can't order the return of your buddy's ashes, but I can offer you the ashes from the ashtray outside the courtroom. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, we do have a couple minutes for questions. I uh, and I do want you you're muted. Yeah, you muted I, yourself. Yeah, I um I meant to do this. I just put in the chat box. We do have our hearing officer roundtable on June 8th from 12 to 1. That's uh just an opportunity to answer a lot of questions. Um stuff that like I know for civil traffic, we we've got a bunch of questions that take just a couple minutes to answer and you know we're not going to do a whole presentation on that but the roundtables do turn out to to be a really great opportunity to ask questions to have questions answered 
uh, and you'll get an hour of cogit for that as well. So I hope you've got that on your calendar. Uh, I do want to thank uh, Taj and Judge Huberman. So let's give them uh, applause. The cogit uh, certificate is at the end of your packet. The packet is available on Hightail. Any other questions? Also, the cogit was mailed to everyone with the materials just the other day. Uh, separate from from the end of the page, if you guys don't want to go find it. All right, and our civil traffic um, this year is going to be in person, so you do need to RSVP for that one. Uh, we are going to break off and go into the hearing rooms in the downtown Justice Center and do some mock hearings. So, uh, and this is the first time we've done that since oh, I don't know something happened to society. Uh, so we're excited to be able to return to that. I'm going to try to record the classroom portion of that and put that on YouTube. Uh, so if you can't attend the whole thing, you can at least get half the credit for watching the classroom material if, if assuming the technology works. All right, if there are no so other in questions. The, in the chat, um, there was a question about the roundtable being on June 12th. That is the uh, one of the roundtables. Which one, which roundtable? The June 12th is for the Pro 10. Yes, and the, the hearing officers, I believe, are on June 8th. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. June, June 8 is the hearing yeah. officers from 12 to 1. The Pro 10s uh -huh. are June 12 from 12 to 130. Great. Oh. Okay. I guess I'm not here on the 8th. All right. You're what? No, you're, you're invited on both of them. They better be on your calendar. It's not, <laughs> but I'll put it on there. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.